Dr. Michael Roizen. Dr. Michael Roizen. You, the Owner's Manual Radio Show. Today, you're going to listen to a You, the Owner's Manual podcast, 994B. That's sensational. It's Dr. Paul A. Offit. When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far, the book is called Overkill. Sensational book, and it's a sensational interview. Um, the sponsor, of course, of our podcast is Persona Nutrition. You can get personalized supplements like I do, and you can too. If you want to have some fun, take the free online assessment to get supplements personalized just for you. Go to mypersona.com. Now let's go and talk to my hero, one of my heroes, Paul A. Offit, MD. Let's go and do the right introduction, though. Paul Offit is a director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, probably number one or two children's hospital in the world, as well as the Maurice R. Hillman Professor of Vaccinology. I've never heard of that word used, but that means a real uh, knowledge of vaccines and Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. He developed rotavirus vaccine, Rotatech, and he's recipient of many awards. Um, and the um, reason he's one of the idols you have to have in all of the world is he's helped millions of kids not die and not suffer from diarrheal illnesses. Um, the book he wrote that we're talking about is called Overkill. When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far. Um, Dr. Offit, thanks very much for coming on and for being uh, part of what I would call the, the genius of medicine in the world, modern world. Um, one of the things that is so unique about this book is that he goes into how it got that way. That is, how did we learn to treat a fever with um, things that lower it and why that might not be good? Or how did we happen uh, to decide that we should all finish the antibiotic course, but that might not be necessary? Um, or, uh, and, and there are, I think, are 14 or 15 um, similar things in the book, one of which I'm going to go into because I... Uh, I'm going to try and change his mind about aspirin, but the rest of it is just so solidly done and so wonderful um, that this is a great book. Um, if you enjoy history, you'll enjoy this book. If you enjoy medicine, you'll enjoy this book. If you want to learn more about what you should or shouldn't do with medicine, you'll enjoy this book, Overkill, When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far. Um, Paul, how did let me go in and first talk about um, the uh, fever story. So the, he starts off by talking about treating a fever can prolong or worsen an illness. When I was a kid and I had a fever, my mom would always give me something to bring the fever down. And sometimes it was more painful than the disease, bringing the fever down. I remember being put in an ice in a bath with ice water or ice in it to bring a fever down. 
Um, obviously, there are some times when bring a fever down is appropriate. Um, but talk to us about that. Actually, my mother did the same thing. I thought it was only her. Um, yeah. So, uh, the, you know, we, we all make fever. Every every bird or anything that flies, walks, crawls, or swims on the face of this planet can make fever. But we pay a price for fever. I mean, it, you, it, cause, it causes energy. Our basic metabol basal metabolic rate increases uh, about 12% for every degree centigrade. So we pay a price for fever. So why do we do it? Why, why do, does everybody do it? And I think the reason is, uh, clearly, is that your immune system works better at a higher temperature. The white cells that kill bacteria work better at a higher temperature. The B cells that make antibodies that, that neutralize viruses like COVID-19 um, work more efficiently at a higher temperature. So, so then wouldn't it follow that if you treat fever that you can, would prolong or worsen illness? And there's study after study that shows exactly that. Remember, as a pediatrician, the, the one that struck me the most, or at least the first one I saw, was when they took children who had chickenpox and either treated them with Tylenol, acetaminophen, or didn't. And the children who were treated with Tylenol shed virus for longer and took a longer time to cross over those blisters than the kids who weren't treated. And that's really been shown again and again and again. We really neutralize a critical part of our immune response when we choose to treat fever. And so why do we still do it? And isn't there a, a some degree of fever that's really problematic? I think we do it because it's not pleasant having fever. You know, we have muscle aches, we have headaches, we shiver. It's not pleasant. So when we eliminate those symptoms, I think we mistakenly think that therefore our disease is getting better when that's really not true. Um, so that's the main reason to feel better. I think some people think that if the fever gets too high, that that can cause brain damage. That's really not true with physiological fevers, meaning the fevers that we make. It is true with environmental fevers, meaning people who suffer heat stroke because they're laborers or football players or military people who are out there on a hot day and have heavy clothing and don't let themselves adequately sweat and dissipate heat. But physiological fevers don't do that. I think the other reason people do it is to try and prevent something called febrile seizures, which occurs and can occur in young children. Um, and the thinking is that it's the height of the fever that causes that. It's really more the rapid rise in fever. And there are a number of studies showing that it really doesn't, doesn't help to prevent febrile seizures to treat, to treat that fever. So, I mean, I think if you, if you just use the sort of current COVID-19 uh, analogy, you need you rid, you rid yourself of that infection because you make antibodies directed against that virus. And know, know this, know that the B cells that are making those antibodies don't make them as well at a lower temperature. We, we actually had a child in our hospital, I think you'll appreciate this story. He was a soccer player. He was hit uh, with a soccer ball in his hip. He had a... Um, something called a septic thrombophlebitis, which is a sort of a, a clot in his vein that was infected with MRSA, so bacteria that's not easy to treat. That MRSA bacteria spread to his lungs and caused lung abscesses. It spread to his brain and caused brain abscesses. It spread to his joints and bones and caused abscesses there, which is, say, collections of pus. And day after day, he had that bacteria in his bloodstream. Despite being treated with antibiotics that were appropriate, he had that bacteria in his bloodstream. And we were treating him around the clock with anti-fever medicines. Every two hours, he would get ibuprofen or he, like Motrin, or he would get uh, acetaminophen, Tylenol to try and keep his fever down. So finally, I just sat down with the parents and with the boy and with the nurses and said, let's just, just stop treating his fever. And we did. And within about a day and a half, the, that bacteria cleared from his bloodstream. Now, it may have happened anyway. I mean, that's not a proof, but you certainly couldn't convince the parents of that who thought it was a miracle. I mean, fever does work for you. Um, and so that's just one of the 14 wonderful stories in here. 
I want to go and take issue with the aspirin story, and I, I've got to tell you that that the way um, the history of aspirin is told is brilliant and wonderful. But one of the things uh, that I think um, that that at least bothered me in this was we didn't talk about ways of preventing the side effects of aspirin, uh, such as taking it with water and the instruction of, of how to take it specifically or with a, um, if you will, something to decrease the risk of um, gastrointestinal bleeding. Um, and the second, and hasn't been done in most of the studies. And the second thing is, um, and this is getting into the weeds, if you will, is what um, Dr. Offit beautifully describes here is the initial studies showing that it prevents a second heart attack or stroke um, or decreases it by about 20%. Um, and that the data showed that initially with first heart attacks and strokes, but now in the randomized studies, it doesn't show any benefit when you use what we call intention to treat analysis. That is, when you look at people who are randomly assigned to take or not take it. But if you look at what we call on-protocol analysis, it has a striking reduction. And that's because a lot of people assigned to take it don't take it on protocol. And some of those who are assigned to the placebo group say, must be good, so I'll take it. And those numbers, the, the numbers of people who go off protocol or who start taking aspirin are so great as it contaminates the study. Um, and so that's my issue with um, that and the fact that you're not that we don't combine benefits. So it does decrease, um, I think it is nine cancers. You show the colon cancer um, study. So where am I wrong in my analysis? Right. So, so uh, the data are clear that if you've had a first stroke or first heart attack, that, that by taking a daily aspirin, which is a platelet inhibitor, so it decreases your blood's ability to clot, um, that that decreases your chance of having a second stroke or heart attack. So the question is, was that also and it, true and for it people decreases, who risk? Well, well, let me go in. And it decreases inflammation, so it decreases the risk of that um, you break off a, a clot. So we don't know the real mechanism we think it's the platelet inhibition, but it also decreases um, when you look at it. For example, when, when we've looked at it with, um, for example, people who eat red meat or egg yolks will get inflammation um, stimulated by the microbiome or their diet and what it does to your belly. But if you take aspirin, it decreases that inflammation substantially. Right. So then the question is for someone who hasn't had a first stroke or hasn't had a first heart attack, but they're at risk. For example, they have high blood pressure, they have high levels of bad cholesterol. Would it make a difference there? And at least the studies that, that I had looked through showed that it, it didn't seem to. And at worst, you know, one may increase the risk of bleeding, including serious bleeding, you know, this kind of blood bleeding that would occur, say, between your brain and your, your skull. And so, so my understanding is that those data were convincing enough to at least advisory groups to, to cause them to, you know, to not recommend then aspirins for people who are at risk of a first stroke or heart attack but haven't had one yet. So, I mean, I guess I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a pediatrician, so I don't, uh, I don't routinely take, take care of this group of patients, but I did make sure to talk to a group of internists 
um, before I, I wrote that chapter and or sent it in and before uh, and also talked to people, you know, that were associated with advisory committees that had also at least bought into those data enough to make that recommendation. No, that's absolutely right. I don't want anyone to think that that what you what you wrote is not correct. What I want um, at least to acknowledge, if you will, is that the other point of view on this is when you look rather than um, at uh, intention to treat analysis, but actually on protocol analysis and combined benefits, the cancer prevention plus the heart disease prevention, those overwhelm for a large number of people over the age of 50 and with comorbidities, the side effects of bleeding. Um, but that's, that's a minor point compared to how great um, the rest of the book is and the whole book is. Um, so um, tell me about um, heart stents not preventing, uh, not prolonging lives. Right. See, it, it would make sense, right? You, you have um, two main arteries that supply your heart. If one of the arteries is blocked by more than 70% and you have um, chest pain in that area that the heart, that that artery is supplying, or you have a heart attack in the, the area that that heart is supplying, which is a heart muscle damage, it would make sense then to open up that artery, which then will allow more easy flow and therefore less pain and less chance of having heart muscle damage. What's interesting is that there was a study done which is remarkable that they could do that study, the so-called orbiter trial, where they basically put in a sham stent. So either they, the patient thought they were getting a heart stent or they thought they might not be getting a heart stent. They didn't know. They didn't know whether they'd gotten a heart stent or not. Um, and so they, they, they would do the whole thing. They, so the, cardi, the cardiologist would lay them down on the table, would thread the catheter up into the, that area of the coronary artery, and then either put in a heart stent or not put in a heart stent. Those are really tough studies to do, aren't they? Well, I, I, amazing. It was done in England. It's amazing that actually they got uh, they were able to get an ethics board to approve that. But in any case, it was done. Because the pro- I think the issue is, you know, it's easy to measure blood pressure. It's easy to measure temperature. Pain is really subjective. Pain is what you say pain is. And so here, it, they, they always worried about the placebo response, that you thought that you, because you've gone through a heart stent, that therefore you, you should have less pain. And so therefore you perceive yourself as having less pain. So this, this study basically took that away by not letting people know whether they had a heart stent or not. And then they looked to see using other medical care, making sure people had good diets and exercise well and kept their blood pressure down and, and you know, made sure they're high that density lipoprotein or their, their low density lipoprotein was kept down. They did all that and found that there was no difference between the two. So why would that be? And I think the reason is, is that that large artery that was blocked also supplies smaller and smaller arteries that then, you know, sort of ultimately uh, provide blood to that area of the, uh, the heart muscle. And those are also blocked to some extent. So I think that's why it didn't work. And, and as a consequence, you know, groups like the Cleveland Clinic now aren't doing heart stenting anymore. So, but it's, you know, it's hard to change established practices. And I, and I think that's part of the problem. I, I should say we do it for acute, for people with acute s- syndromes, mm-hmm. but, not, but not for prevention of heart attacks. Exactly. So that's exactly right. So, so for, for this, I was just talking to Steve Nissen at Cleveland Clinic, and she, he had said that, you know, they now have sort of, you know, backed away from heart standing. I, I hope that's also happening across the board because it's not a benign procedure. And if you can just uh, do the same thing medically without having to put people through a surgery, then you, you've done some good. More of you, the owner's manual, coming right up. But let's take a moment to talk about your health. Dr. Royzen will tell you that a common question he gets asked often is what vitamins he likes. 
what he recommends. Without knowing more about their needs, that question used to be almost impossible to answer. Now, however, it's easy. Go to personanutrition.com slash Roizen and take your free assessment. It's a smart and easy way to get personalized supplement recommendations. The Persona assessment is backed by the latest nutritional research and the expertise of Persona's medical advisory board, which consists of eight nutritionists, a pharmacist, and five medical doctors, including Dr. Michael Roizen. All the latest scientific data and nutritional research put into one supplement program personalized for you. Just take the five-minute assessment to get your free recommendations based on your goals, lifestyle, allergies, special diets, and prescription meds. Convenient vitamin packs are delivered to your door each month. Whether you want to sleep better, have more energy, or simply stay as young as you can, go to personanutrition.com slash Roizen and get 50% off your order today. Half off now at personanutrition.com slash Roizen. That's R-O-I-Z-E-N. Now, I want to switch topics, and, and I didn't warn... Uh, Dr. Offit about this as much, but he is one of the the world's experts on vaccines and um, the benefits of it. And he was the uh, co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine, which has obviously prevented um, death in millions of kids and uh, diarrhea in probably tens or hundreds of millions of kids. So thank you for that, Paul. But let me go and and say what I heard on the news recently about um, the vaccine for um, that we're developing. That I guess there's 70 different attempts at vaccine development against uh, the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. Is that um, even if we get one, there isn't a large enough manufacturing facility or enough of the reagents to be able to supply it widely in a timely fashion. Um, is that true or is that a, uh, if you will, a internet rumor? Well, it depends what the, what the final product is. And I suspect it would be more than one. I mean, if you, for example, if you, if you take the virus and inactivate it in the same way that make, make the polio vaccine or take the virus and weaken it in the same way that we make the measles vaccine, I think scale up there would be difficult. And so you would need a probably more than one company, many companies actually to get together and work to mass produce that vaccine, which the government could actually help to arrange. If it's, if it's a purified protein vaccine, similar to the hepatitis B or human papillomavirus vaccine, or it was a DNA or messenger RNA vaccine, which are all sort of have the same basic uh, 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 method, which is to basically have a, the immune response to that one protein, that spike protein that's on the surface of the virus, which would then prevent the virus from binding cells, which would then prevent you from being infected. Um, that could be scaled up much more easily. So that that one, I don't, th- those I don't worry about so much. But, I, you know, we're just at the beginning. We just had that strain um, in hand, you know, several months ago. The average length of time that it takes to make a vaccine is about 20 to 25 years. I mean, our, our vaccine took 26 years to develop. That's pretty much average. And to try and do it in this sort of 12 month, 18 month time frame um, is remarkably fast and is going to make for a much smaller sort of uh, trial, so called phase three trial, pre licensure trial of maybe a few thousand people, whereas typically it would be more like tens of thousands. And in, if we do it in these smaller groups, 1,000 or 2,000 for the phase three trial, the phase three, we should say safety is phase one, uh, um, effectiveness in an open trial is phase two, 
real effectiveness and safety in larger populations is what we usually call phase three. Um, is is that going to hinder our ability to get um, both safe and effective vaccines, or is the prevalence of this large enough that we're going to be still able to do it, do you think? Well, it's a trade. I, th I think, you know, medicine is always a matter of risks and benefits. I think if, if this vaccine comes out, say, by the end of the year, um, the and, and knowing that it's been in a few thousand people and not tens of thousands of people before uh, licensure, um, if that this virus is still causing the scourge that it's causing, if it's still causing thousands of people to die every day, I think people would be willing to take the risk that maybe there would be a, a safety issue that came up that was only revealed after it was given to tens of thousands of people. But they know that the real risk right now would be of dying of COVID-19. They may be more willing to take that risk. So it is, you know, when you when you know that, that the typical amount of time it takes to make a vaccine is 20 years or so, and you know that this vaccine is being made much more quickly than that, I think you can assume that there are things that, are, that aren't being done that are typically done during a, a normal sort of vaccine uh, development program. And so there are some risks that wouldn't be there for a 20-year program. But again, it depends on how widespread and dangerous the virus is at the time the vaccine comes out. Um, anything else I should be asking you about this vaccine's development um, for our audience before we uh, hang it up? No, I, I, think, I think that's it. There, there's just one thing I want to say quickly is in writing the book, the, the chapter actually that I found most interesting was that, that you didn't need to fin finish the antibiotic course. I mean, it's, there's abundant evidence showing that you can treat the patient, that, you know, that you don't need to, um, just like with someone's wheezing, we treat them until they're not wheezing anymore. If they have pain, then we treat them until they don't have pain anymore. Um, but here you say that, that someone should be treated for seven or 10 or 14 days, and much of that time, they're fine. And now there are studies showing, especially in adults and now to a lesser extent in children, um, that, you know, that you don't need to treat that long. The studies are just coming out in, in children, but it's child's over two and they have an ear, uh, an earache and it, it's infected with bacteria. You only need to treat for a few days. No, no need to treat for 10 days anymore. And advisory committees are now coming, you know, coming in line with those data. That was the thing that surprised me the most. And I should say one of the great things, and, and I said it before about this book, Overkill, When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far, is that he goes through the history of how we got this way so that you'll understand how modern medicine, um, if you will, screwed up or went to what they considered the logic in this uh, finishing the antibiotic course um, and um, where when it's been studied, um, that's been an error and how long it takes to correct those errors. Um, I think that's the to me, one of the most interesting things is how long it takes to correct the errors because we're still, uh, I think we're still suppressing fevers as was with the child in the ICU because it is so uncomfortable um, to have the rigor and the fever. Yeah, you know, medicine evolves. We learn as we go. Yes, and, and it's a wonderful book, a superb book um, called Overkill, When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far by Paul Offit. Thanks again for listening. This interesting You, the Owner Manual podcast is brought to you by Persona Nutrition. You can discover vitamins and supplements personalized for your needs. Take the free online assessment at mypersona.com. Thanks again for downloading us. And by the way, you should listen to 993B Emily Hunt 
the College of Engineering from West Texas A&M. She talked about something easy that you can do to prevent all kinds of infections from all kinds of surfaces, and you only have to do it once. And 992B was Charles Brenner talking about NAD. I got him to talk about it for longevity. He talked about it also for preventing infections. So we've had a lot of things on infections. And Paul Offit, who you just heard, why is he my hero? Well, he did this 26-year-long course to develop rotavirus, prevented hundreds of, it prevented millions of deaths in kids, hundreds of millions of diarrheal illnesses. Paul Offit, tell your friends about it. Joe, thanks for engineering. Dr. Offit, I can't thank you enough. Um, as you know, you're one of my heroes, so thank you for what you do. Um, and thank you for downloading us.